My name is Owen Flynn and welcome to episode 51 of the Trail Running Ireland podcast, sponsored by EcoTrail Wicklow on September 24th, 2022. Temperatures are soaring across Europe and we're even hitting the 30s in Ireland, so it's the perfect time to talk about training and racing in the heat with Rene Borg from Running Coach Ireland. And we have a really fascinating special guest this week, from tales of multiple four minute miles as a track athlete to his current day job of editor of Trail Running Magazine UK, it's the expert in all things running, the really fantastic Paul Larkins. Everybody, get your running gear on, let's go. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 51 of the podcast and before we talk to Rene and Paul, a big thank you to our show sponsor who are taking over the mantelpiece after Jason Kyo's sport and injury clinic support over the last two months. Welcome on board EcoTrail Wicklow who will be with us until mid-September, just before their race day on September 24th, where you will have the chance to run the 19km, 30k, 46k or 80k route alongside some of Wicklow's most scenic and wonderful locations such as the coastal town of Bray and its seaside promenade onto the Wicklow Mountains National Park across the little and great Sugarloaf Mountains passing by the the scenic Kilruddy Estate en route to the Wicklow Way as you pass by to some of the National Park highlights such as the incredible Powerscourt Waterfall and Loch Tay, the, the Guinness Lake, before beginning your return journey to Bray via Belmont Estate. So all in all, a superb race to look forward to, guys, and all going well. Our friends from Wicklow Wolf will be on hand with some of their exceptional alcohol-free craft beer at the finish line too. So do make sure to sign up to Ecotrail Wicklow before the race numbers sell out. In racing news, guys, I'm going to highlight the big international race that took place just this weekend, the legendary US Ultra Trail race, the Hard Rock 100, which saw one of the greatest showdowns, one of the greatest head-to-head battles in the history of the sport, with Killian Jornet taking the win in a new course record, but only just by 15 minutes in the end, as he finally broke away in the last climb from the defending champion and four-time UTMB winner, legend in his own right, Francois de Hen, killing one at a time of 21 hours, 36 minutes. And in the ladies race, who else could it be but the one and only Courtney Dowwater, who blew the ladies feel apart, as she nearly always does in fairness. She finished in sixth place overall. And at the time I'm recording this, roughly nine hours after Courtney's finish, the second place lady hasn't come in yet. So it's a race and it's highlights to, to watch out for on your YouTube stream over the next couple of days. Some spectacular racing racing in that legendary US Ultra Trail race, the Hard Rock 100. Just before we call it, many guys, a big thank you again to all of our Patreons who have been with us every month since the start. 50 episodes now, 51 now with this new one. And especially to those who have joined us since our last episode went out. Robbie Williams, James Tierney, Kevin Deary and Barry Minnock. 
thanks a mil guys we appreciate the support we really do and if you're not on patreon with us yet and would like to help us out we'd be very grateful if you could pop over to our trail running ireland patreon page where for three euros a month you can become part of the team behind the podcast right so time to call in Rene and chat about what we need to do to be able to train in the heat and how we can actually become a better athlete if we get it right Rene, Rene Borg from Running Coach Ireland. Rene, good to have you on the show again. And Rene, are you in your shorts and t-shirts there? Because it is hot. I am, in fact, Owen. Yeah, I'm sitting here in my old Columbia t-shirt. So I don't know. No, you didn't have a Columbia-sponsored athlete on this week. I think you had a, you had my co-commentator on instead from the Europeans. We did. We've got Paul coming up now in a couple of minutes, Rennie, after our own chat. And I think the, the listeners are really going to enjoy it. Um, and it's, I'm about to head out the door myself just after we have our call here, Rennie. And I'm just looking at the temperatures here. Now, I'm in Las Palmas, as the listeners know, and it's, uh, it's about 29, 30 degrees, which is kind of at my limit of when uh, of the temperature kind of, that I can withstand as I'm training. But there's a heat temperature all across Europe, up in mainland Spain and France. It's even higher. It's in the mid-30s. And Ireland, for once as well is suffering with really hot temperatures. And I think our listeners are really going to feel the heat. So what we wanted to talk about today was just why and how heat affects us and some measures maybe we can um, put in place to help us get through the next couple of days. And if we go on holidays, because of course a lot of the athletes that we coach really there, they're in France, they're in Spain at the moment. And I'm sure you like myself, you know, I'm getting messages saying, oh, I, I can't get out for my run today because it's just too hot. Yeah, I haven't actually had anyone who has refused to go out for run own, but I do have people who are concerned about it. You know, people are especially concerned when it's a race in the heat. Yeah. Um, but they also are, they, I can see little complaints in the comments, all right, you know, where, oh, it was really tough today because of the heat, or I didn't run quite as far as I had planned because of the heat. Yeah, so it's definitely something that if you can learn how to manage it for training, you know, you can, you can maybe not lose the training you'd plan to do if you know how to adjust properly to it um, and for racing of course it's if it really is hot and it's a road race the, the problem is you simply cannot run as quickly as you would like to you know and those who try generally drop out and own oh, you've probably heard all the horror stories of people who went over to the Stockholm marathon and it was 25 degrees and they just kept on target pace and then you know they had to retire after 20 miles um, but in trail running at least we are free from we're free from the, the tyranny of time. And that means we just need to do better than our competitors in the heat. So I think that's a nice segue maybe for those who I think are racing as, as we did for the last few weeks here in Ireland, you know, and it, it was a big difference. I certainly thought it was a big difference last Wednesday when I went out for the Earl's drive race, just after coming back from La Palma, you know, where you, where you took me out in the heat, Owen, <laughs> and that, was, that was certainly cooking. And I think we could see the difference in, probably both fitness levels and acclimatization as we were coming yeah. up. Yeah. And of course there's different levels, isn't there? Any, when we are going out into out to train in the heat, in the hot temperatures that, you know, we can feel hot, but we can still maybe train and we just need to manage our expectations where maybe instead of doing 60, 65 minutes, we need to cut it back to 40 to 45 as we're adapting to the, to the new hot temperatures you know, but then once our body temperature begins to go from 36 and a half, 37, 
up to say towards 38.5, 39, that's when there's the real red flags appear and when we might experience symptoms like what? Dizziness, low blood pressure, nausea. We've all seen videos on YouTube over the years of, of those runners who their, their central governor system just hasn't actually kicked in and they've man- or they've managed to override the brain that is telling them to, to cool, to, to slow down so they can cool down. And they make it so close to finish lines, but their body just gives up and they end up wandering from side to side on the track or on the road. And um, thankfully, we I don't think we've seen as much on the trails or the roads yet, but we do have to be very careful, don't we? Because if we even go beyond that one more to the next level where our body temperature is hitting 40 to 41, well, then that's when heat stroke kicks in, organ failure. And that's when, you know, we're on our way to the hospital. Yeah, if we start at that dramatic level, you know, which, as you say, heat um, heat stroke is the worst of the, the types of heat, or you could say fatigue you can get. You know, there's something called heat cramps. We can talk about that. And heat exhaustion, which is in the middle. And I think that's what I suffered um, after Sunday, you know, when you and I were out. Um, but I think that's that's actually a good example of, of what makes the difference between being able to run in a hot environment and not because by the time we got out that Sunday, and I think it was about noon time, I had already run down there for four days and I hadn't really had any problems. Um, you know, obviously I could feel it was a bit warmer than in Ireland, um, but there was a few factors that made the difference. And it's when you look at those factors, you can see, well, okay, these are the things I need to watch out for. Or the listener needs to watch out for as well. So first of all, all the other days I was out, I was either running um, by myself or I was the fittest person running on the day. Okay, So that means I was under no pressure to keep at the intensity I felt was ideal. But I was also running generally later in the day. So obviously that makes a difference, whereas we ran right in the midday heat. So that's a very simple thing you can first of all do is look at your schedule and pick and um, try and not and pick the worst spell, right? If you're in a new hot country, a new hot environment, or the temperature has gone up the way it has, maybe it's time to change your noon runs to morning runs. But of course, you might also choose to utilize it because if you have a hot run coming up now in a warmer country in the next month or two, you know, actually running at noon, if you know how to manage it, could be right. Um, so I think, Owen, you wanted today to go into both how can we adapt so that you know we are ready when we do it in training and racing, but also what can you do during and what can you do after? And I, I think we can maybe start with after because that's that's what I saw most recently myself. You know, So when you come from a run where you can feel this sort of heat exhaustion and you had a few of the symptoms there, you know, it can be that your pulse is a bit more rapid. It can be fatigue, dizziness, faintness, heavy sweating. It can even be total loss of appetite, you know, muscle cramps, headaches. I actually had mild headache. Um, I was a little bit fatigued. Um, definitely the heart rate was higher than it should be. That was kind of the main thing for me straight after. But I was lucky, obviously, that we were staying in this lovely place and there was a pool. So the first thing to do was to drink a good bit of water coming back to the car. But you have to be careful when you do that, because if you drink too much water and too quickly, first of all, you could obviously just vomit. That's a common thing to happen if you're already a bit heat exhausted. And you may deplete your salts too much. And that's actually the most dangerous thing that can happen to you. Right, because we know this this condition they call hyponatremia, so low natrium or low salt. Um, and if you have low blood salt, 
you can I that's very lethal because it totally messes with your body's ability for the heart to to beat properly and things like that so when you do rehydrate do it gently um maybe instead of just pouring gallons of water down pour the first one over your head as you say if you have ice packs I actually had that own because the little fridge in the place we stayed was full of these um uh, plastic ice packs I forget the English name for them but I packed them every day in the boot of the car and let me that was mainly actually to keep my drinks cold so they weren't warm by the time you got back but i've i've you probably noticed when we were driving home i asked you to drive because i was feeling a little bit slow in the head um i packed some of those ice packs on my body yeah you know and that was just an attempt to to because my experience with previous heat exposure has been that the quicker you can help the body drop the core temperature the, the quicker you are going to shake the after effects of an experience like that yeah and um, you know and it's like any adaptation that it can actually be a really good adaptation if you manage it but you don't want the effects to linger for two weeks after yeah and so it's maybe worth just saying you know or reminding the listeners of the simple basic common sense things that i'm sure everybody knows but there's no harm saying them out loud again Rene. and running in the shade as much as we can while it's so hot and avoiding direct sunlight you mentioned there not running in the middle of the day and when it is very hot stick on the sun cream of course as well and um, for example when i'm out training and i remember having a chat about it with you when we were running that time in la palma stick a cap on the head that is so important and um, when i go out running if i didn't have a cap i would actually i would go back to the house and i would go and make sure that i have a cap on me because you just avoid that glare of the sun on your face on the back of your head of course as well neck and it's so it, it just it does play a key role in helping to cool you down now, there are other things while we're running that can help Rennie as well. And you, you might think that, well, I better make sure that I drink a lot when I'm running. But from what I've read, Rennie, I'm sure you've seen the same, that drinking actually while we're running, because, you know, we're, we're 60, 70, 80 kilos in, in body weight, taking on 100 meters or 100 milliliters of probably lukewarm water unless you have that ice pack fridge with you keeping your water cool as you're running along it's not actually going to help that much likewise if you think oh well i know i'm going to go for a big long run tomorrow uh, i know tomorrow is going to be 28 degrees so i'm going to drink loads today so i'm hydrated for tomorrow that's not really going to help either because you're just going to end up overworking your kidneys and spending more time in the bathroom than usual and um, the, the ice cold pack that you mentioned, and um, we've often seen, I think, over the years, more so in the World Championships and the Olympic Games, um, the real pro guys that might have the ice packs around their neck as they're warming up. I don't know if you've ever done that, Renny, or if you ever had to do that in a race yourself. No, not really, because mainly I didn't have access to a proper cold vest, you know, that when I, the few times it was hot enough, uh, the, the race that affected me the most was actually the Copenhagen Marathon, believe it or not, because it was 25 degrees, you know, and you know yourself when you're running a marathon, 25 degrees, that it's too hot. Um, but I, because we were traveling, there wasn't, there was only so much gear you can bring. So I had to be, I just poured, as you say there, I poured a lot over my head during the race because i was aware that apart from the electrolyte drinks if i just drank like a lunatic it would be you know right down hyponatremia lane um, and a problems but what i do tend to do when it's really hot is i barely do any warm-up and that's something i learned from i think it might have been lorraine moller one of 
uh, her books where she mentioned that anecdote that she was preparing. It might have been the Barcelona Olympic marathon 1992. And she said she did see some elites who she felt were doing way too involved warm-ups for the temperature they were running in. And she said it was, she felt she was already warm. Her muscles were warm just from the temp, the climate. So she felt instead she was just going to stay in the shadow for as long as possible to keep her body temperature down. So I think that could be an easy strategy to yeah. adopt, you know, keep yourself in the shadow until the last minute, use the first few K as a warm-up when you race on a hot day. Yeah. Um, of course, a lot of people do the low tech thing. You know, they have a cap or they have a sweatband or they have a bandana, something like that. And they soak that in water or they carry these little sponges. We've seen that a lot with elites as well in marathon. They basically carry a sponge and whenever they come to a water station, they could just get it soaked and they put that over their head. So that, yeah. that's a pretty good way to, to do it. And we know for our ultra trail guys, they can take in a little bit more water if they are very good at using things like salt tablets. Because that way you can get a steady flow as well as salt as you are rehydrating. Mm. And of course, probably one of the best ways, Rennie, to prepare ourselves to run in the heat and to get the benefit of running in the heat, because there can be great benefit from it as well as we get fitter and as our heart learns to pump more plasma throughout the body, so therefore more oxygen get into our muscles, of course, is to, similar to altitude training, we adapt over time. Over a seven to, day, seven to 10 day period, we will get a lot more efficient running in the heat, won't we? So if we're on holidays, a two week holiday in Spain or France, we can actually great, get great benefit if we do it bit by bit, if we do it strategically, we don't do too much too soon, that when we come back to Ireland for our race in two weeks time after getting through the heat wave, and if we're back to normal cool temperatures in Ireland, we'll get quite a similar boost in performance as if we were altitude training for two weeks as well, I think. Yeah, a lot of people have said you need to treat it exactly the same way and you get similar benefits so that when you run in hotter climates, you can actually get the same exercise benefit, but running at a lower pace, which is the same, you know, as, as an altitude training. And you're, all, you're looking at fairly similar timeframes as well. So it's something, ideally, you need to commit a little bit of time to it, you know, at least a few weeks, but ideally more. Some, some research actually shows up to nine weeks is optimal, you know, which is quite a long time. Um, mm. But at the end of the day, the main thing to understand with any stressor is that when you do it, there is a negative and a positive effect. And the negative effect is more short-term and the positive effect is more long-term. But it means you need to know the timing because it's a little bit similar to this story of ours, right? That obviously when you have heat exhaustion on Sunday, you're not reaping the benefit of that by the Wednesday race, quite the contrary. And that's certainly how I felt. I felt yeah. overheated right from the start. Um, yeah. so, it, But I feel better now. <laughs> and yeah. and I, ha I have had previous experiences training in Singapore. So Singapore has general humidity between 83% and 100%, right? So that means you can barely sweat. Even at midnight, it's 28 degrees there. And that's when I was running, right in the middle of the night. And I did 200 plus K weeks there. And... It was hard. It was very, very hard. But once I got home and I shook off that experience, I was in very, very good shape to run in the Irish climbs. Yeah. So, so, so that's one example. Uh, but obviously, if you look to, go back and look at the paces, they were not what they would have been you know, running in Ireland. But it's not the only thing you can do. And so, because we had a few of, the, of our clients were racing in hot climbs this year. 
and they had questions about well how can i do it because where i live right now it's not that warm and they didn't have the opportunity to go anywhere you know because we've had kind of a very poor spring here so there's basically there's two different ways that it's called heat acclimatization that's the general thing you're speaking about and you can do it either in an artificial environment or you can do it in a natural environment they're the two different ways so that means outdoor basically or indoor in the lab and you can do it in a passive way or you can do it while exercising and a lot of people call that controlled hypothermia so that means you're trying to bring up your body temperature in a controlled way if you do it while running it's generally done with various different techniques you know from very low tech just wearing more layers, right? So that if you know you're going to do Marathon de Sable or something like that, uh, you might do most of your runs carrying um, much more layers than is appropriate for what you're running in. You know, you could be in long sleeve um, jogging pants and you could be having two or three layers on top, you know, stuff like that. That would be a very low tech way of always working out warmer. Um, the passive one, because I don't want to give people a hundred examples, because I think most people can kind of imagine it, ways you could do it. But a, a very standard way that it was done by one of our clients is that after most of their runs, they would go straight home and sit in a sauna. They had access to one or a hot tub for 20 to 30 minutes. Yeah. And that's a very common tactic, you know, and that way you have, your body temperature basically goes up. And if you do that consistently for a number of weeks, you get that heat acclimatization effect. But I know, Owen, you, you had a cheeky response when we were saying before. You, you, I think you were saying, you know, first of all, you just need to get fitter. Well, that's the thing. I think the, the best strategy to beat the heat, Remy, is just to be fit in general. Because, you know, imagine you're on holidays with, say, family members or whatever. One of us might be, you know, a regular runner like most of us that listen to the podcast are. And then say we have a maybe a family member that, maybe does another sport, but doesn't, wouldn't do it every day. So imagine us going out for a half an hour run in 30 degrees and 50 degrees, 50% humidity and our, say our footballing friend or our golfing family member coming out with us naturally will, I think, be able to withstand the heat better than a more sedentary member of the family. So I think the fact that we're runners are generally fit, means we can just handle that heat that much that much better because i think our hearts can just pump more plasma more oxygen more more of a cooling system to the skin than say a not so fit person would be um and you just on the on the sauna piece there the hot sauna Renny, i was only talking at the valderan utmb race there to, to one of the world's top trail runners and she was saying that she uses that exact strategy in the first half of her season just before she gets ready to race, part of her weekly routine is that heat acclimatization in the in the sauna. Um, so if it works for the very best in the world, Benny, um, absolutely it will work for our, our own clients and the listeners as well. Yeah, what you're saying there really is a reminder of something we've said many times on this podcast before, which is that first things first. And that means ultimately all these X factors of a race the altitude, the terrain, the heat, the equipment, the pacing strategy, the nutrition, they come second. The first thing is always the basic foundational fitness to complete the task. And because it's so interesting to look at all these X factors quite often, you know, the, the gear and the shoes and everything, um, we can forget that, well, first of all, focus on the fitness. And if you have that foundation, 
then you can start worrying about all the other things. And of course, it's great if you can build a training plan. You know, we try to do that, obviously, that, that it does account for everything eventually. But apart from the reason you're saying is that when the body is fitter, it has more options. It's better at dissipating heat, essentially. But it's also because, as we know, if you really focus correctly on building your aerobic engine, the zone one, the zone two, then every single race pace that you have is actually run at a lower heart rate. And that's, you know, it's obvious that that's going to benefit you because the higher you raise your heart rate, the warmer you get, regardless of what the temperature is. So, So if you can race at a lower heart rate, or at least you're so fit that your body gets stressed later in the race, that means the heart rate stays lower for longer. By the time you really start to heat up, you, you don't have so far to the finish line. Whereas someone who's unfit yet, they, they might very, very quickly, the moment they get in, they're in, let's say, low zone four in maybe the, the Wednesday evening race. And they are accumulating significant amount of heat then straight off the bat. Yeah. And um, I know when I was listening to the Science for Sport podcast, which is very good, Randy, as well, highly recommended to the listeners, um, the sports scientist, Professor Ross Tucker, he was saying that with, from the research that he's done on it, he thinks that the limit in terms of temperature and humidity, because we do need to combine the two to get our overall heat index when we're thinking about training and performing in heat. His top limit was 35 degrees temperature and 60 degree humidity. Once you hit that, it is impossible, impossible to perform any type of endurance event. So that, that's our limit. I mentioned at the start of the conversation, my own limit here is about 28 degrees. Um, but it, that's just down to my own personal perception of just feeling uncomfortable beyond that. And I just, I just wait until the next day or I wait until later on that night. But in terms of the science behind it, what Ross Tucker was saying was 35 max, Above that, just don't even don't even go to the race. Stay at home. And and speaking of races, Randy, what I thought was very interesting when I was just reading a couple of articles earlier on today was that if you think about it, there's actually no rule anywhere in any races that we go to or any even of the big championships. Have you ever come across, Renny, a rule? And you, you're involved in race organizing as well, so you've seen health and safety plans. Um, have you ever come across a rule that says, if the temperature gets to, say, 32 degrees today, the race is stopping. We're not going ahead. And I bet you, if you were to look it up, it would be very, very hard pressed to find something. The only one that I came across was the Gold Coast Marathon in Australia. And when they get to 30 degrees, they, they postpone the event. But I couldn't see anything else. I mean, especially in the in the trail running world, I couldn't see anything at all. Yeah, no, I've never come across it, but I organize races in Ireland, right? So it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not going to be a factor. But it makes total sense because for, for numerous reasons. Like one, obviously, there is a point where anything you perform, it's you would be putting yourself at significant risk. Um, you know, maybe you could just walk or walking then instead. But uh, there certainly is a time where it gets dangerous and we've seen it uh, in athletics over the years. Um, there's a very good book. I think people could consider reading. It's an oldie, but goodie. It's called Duel in the Sun. And it's about Dick Beardsley and Alberto Salazar's epic battle in the Boston Marathon. I think it's 1983. And that race was on an incredibly hot day. And none of those two men were ever the same after that race. Um, you know, Salazar's hormonal problems uh, started after that. You know, he had already run himself nearly to death at heat exhaustion once before. So he was already a little bit um, susceptible. And, you know, they just, 
basically in some ways what seems to have happened is their nervous systems were permanently damaged by that experience you know because they they pushed each other all the way to the finish in those they, conditions they overrode that central governor that normally protects us these guys were so headstrong and so motivated that they just overrode their own brain <laughs> to each other's competition on the day yeah and actually ross tucker i think has written in his book as well that in heat the, there seems to be some malfunctions of the central governor where you you lose the ability for instance to regulate many things including your thirst you know, because yeah. normally they say if you drink to thirst and only to thirst, you can't get hyponatremia because your body is very reliable. But that actually is not true. Once you get over a certain temperature, then you, you start to get an irrational desire to drink. And basically, then you, you start to drown yourself. You know, so that, that it is good advice. Like if you're going out, if, if it's super, super, super hot wherever you are, then maybe go for a little hike instead in the morning or something. And, and just skip the run. Uh, it, it's a call people will have to make for themselves, ultimately. Um, yeah, but but yeah. there's no doubt there is a point where you probably are doing more harm than good. Sure, sure. I remember the scenes of Doha there a couple of years ago. Remember the, the World Championship Marathon there that they ran at 12 o'clock? And I mean, hopefully we won't see many examples of, of heat stroke um, in Ireland over this week. And, and, you know, we'll see people adapting as well this week. So if we do get another heat wave in three or four weeks time, people will be adapted from this period now. And funnily enough, the, I think that the sport that has the biggest problems in terms of heat stroke and so on, and the location, is funnily enough, actually American football in the Southern states in America, because they tend to start their preseason at the height of the summertime in July and August. So you have all these kids, teenagers, young men coming back, they're not as fit as they used to be at the end of the season. They have their big American football clothes and gear on, big helmets on, just no room to breathe at all. And they're down in whatever, Arizona, Texas, in, in the mid-30s, high-40s, trying to get ready for their high school and college football um, seasons. And that's where, that's where you'll find the most examples of heat stroke. Well, I think you're thinking of that case back from 2009, you know, where I, um, there was a coach, one of these college coaches in america he got charged actually by for homicide because like many of these college teams they have this grueling preseason program which is all about how tough you can be you know and really showing the coach who is gonna be on the team um and they had this grueling routine that they always put the athletes through um but it was particularly hot that day and i believe two of the students died from heat exhaustion you know and he then had to unfortunately for him you know you know it, was, it probably he I would say he probably was at fault. Um, you know, obviously it was a complicated case because they had obviously done something before where it hadn't happened, but um, it wasn't the only time. You know, I think there's more cases if, if people go search where it has happened in American college football that these extremely hard, high-intensity sessions done in the summer preseason, some peeps in those big, yes, yeah, say all that gear, the, the players just collapsed and died. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a high price to pay for sport and to show your your coach you're tough and i get how it can happen 
because you know you and i all know what sort of environment that probably is you know it's a very yeah. obviously masculine environment high performance is all about showing you a tough um, but it does show the danger unfortunately yeah absolutely but listen, many hopefully all the listeners get through the next couple of days okay they have their caps on they have their ice packs and ice baths ready to go and uh with a bit of luck we all might come out stronger um over the next week and uh we'll be good to race again in two or three weeks time Rene, thanks a million for that today and sure we'll talk soon mate all right i'll see you home take care For our special guest interview this week, it's a real pleasure to welcome Paul Larkins. Paul is a former sub four minute miler who represented GB at world and European level. Twice the British champion indoors over 3,000 metres, Paul also won the American Collegiate Mile title. He ran for GB at the World Indoor Championships in Seville and was a member of the bronze medal winning team at the World Road Relays. Today, he's the editor of Trail Running Magazine UK, devoted to all things running off-road, as well as a club and England team coach for the under-18s on the track. He's still very much a runner. He's he's recently ran a ultra in Lapland. He was out running with myself and Rene over the course of the weekend at the European Championships in La Palma. It's a real pleasure to welcome Paul Larkins. Paul, really great to have you on the show. Thanks a million for joining us today. Well, it's brilliant. I'm really looking forward to it, having a chat with you after meeting you the other week in the in the Canary Islands there. It was good fun, wasn't it, seeing the best in Europe racing? And, and before we even start to talk, Paul, about mountain running and trail running, can we hop into a time machine and go back to the mid-80s, the early 90s, when you were literally tearing up the track and clocked a number of sub four minute miles. And just so the listeners know, when, when Rene introduced me to you there about what, two weeks ago now, the first thing I did was I just wanted to shake your hand because I had only met one, two, sorry, two sub four minute miles before, Jerry Kiernan and Eamon Coughlin. So to, to get a hat trick of sub four minute miles in, in my life was a real treat. Well, yeah, but probably only third in that ranking list that you just told me. But, uh, <laughs> well, you know, it's exciting to run a sub four minute mile and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that you're so excited by it as well. So that's Yeah. Kind of, you know. I, I, well, <laughs> I'm looking back, looking that back, Paul, on that time. Um, you know, was it just an incredible time of your life and and how big of a deal was it for you to be to be running so so four minute miles? Well, it was yeah, it was huge, really. I suppose looking back, I mean, obviously when you look back in time, you think, oh, that was great. But I mean, it was very exciting to run against Steve Obert or Seb Coe or you know, Steve Cram a little bit later, or Peter Elliott, all those stars, you know. But I mean, I ran my sub four, my first sub four in America, in uh, Oklahoma City, on a, on a wooden track. So that was, uh, that was really, really exciting in hindsight. You think when I show people the pictures of the track, they go, wow, you ran on that? I mean, it just looks like running on old bits of pallet that you get, you know, with the, on the delivery trucks. So Yeah. Very, uh, do, do you remember, like, what was it? Were you training your backside off? Were you training so, so hard? Or, or did you have this incredible talent as well? Um, how, how was the training back then? Well, the training was super hard. So we, uh, I was at Oklahoma State University and we used to run against uh, Arkansas, which all the Irish will know is packed full of uh, superstars, uh, Frank O'Mara, uh, uh, you know, leading the way there. So we trained really hard. I mean, 100 miles every week uh, without fail. Uh, wow. you know, I remember my coach saying to me, 
you know, we had a slightly easier week. It was in about February that I did this sub four. And uh, we came off the mileage a little bit, still around 70 or 80 miles that week. He said, I think you're in shape to go for it. You know, let's go for it. So I went to Oklahoma City and, you know, I believed him and just went for it. I, I you know, I don't, it's a long yeah. time ago now, but I kind of just remember the race was the gun went and I just went to the front and just ran it. You know, wow. um, Joe Falcon, who was a, turned out to be a, a 349 miler in the end. He, he was second, but he was about 10 seconds behind that day. I just ran, you know, when you just got it on that day, coach could wow. see it, coach Weiss could see it, and off I went. <laughs> yeah. And how many sub fours did you get? Um, oh, the you end? know, I've, I'm going to, um, it sounds like I'm showing off. I've lost count. Um, quite. Wow. <laughs> you know, I ran, uh, you know, because I run road sub fours, they're always exciting. Road races, 353 yeah. on the road, 355 against John Walker in. Uh, Gateshead I ran once um but on a track 356 uh loads of 358 I don't know 10 or 15 maybe I've never really counted yeah. them exactly so yeah and of course you had some some British indoor titles as well you were a bit of a 3000 meter specialist I think too yeah. representing Team GB in the world championships as well yeah for some reason I became an indoor specialist so you know I ran some four indoors and then I won the NCAA indoors that was in Oklahoma City so that was a home victory and then you know I won a few uh national titles indoors couple and then I was second a few times as well uh quite a few times so you know first and second probably five or six times so uh, and you're a tall guy Paul as well and people often say that the indoors are suited for maybe small robust guys like say name and Coughlin who just used to power around but you're very tall so that you know that the the indoor circuit suited you as well I guess for some whatever reason I was always fit that time of year I mean I did run quicker (laughs) outdoors but for whatever reason and I loved it I mean you know my coach in high school we ran uh so I suppose it dates back to that. You know, we ran indoors at Cosford, which is, a, a, you know, shut now. And um, he said, let's go and do that when I was in high school. And I wasn't particularly great in high school, you know, not bad, but not, not, not nationally ranked. And yeah, I came third in the national indoors because partly because no one was there and partly because I ran a little bit better. And since then, you know, since that mm-hmm. race, you think, oh, so I always when I coach kids now, I always say, well, let's have a run indoors. You know, they love it. Yeah, some are good, some aren't. It just depends on who can do the bends. Yeah, and your name dropped, you know, the likes of Cram, Ovet and Elliot that you were running against and that you were beating, I think, as well. Um, (laughs) Did you ever come across any of our own Irish heavyweights back in the day and have any good races against the likes of Coughlin, Tracy, Kiernan, Frank O'Mara? Frank O'Mara, do you know, I ran, uh, when I was a freshman, at Oklahoma State, we ran against Arkansas and Frank O'Mara, and I'm going to name drop again, Philbert Bailly. He was uh, running for the University of Oklahoma then. We ran a cross-country race, and I beat them both. Not because uh, I was better than them, but because, you know, I think that day is a long time ago now, but I'm going to say that it was in August, maybe September, and it was about 45 degrees. Honestly, it was about 110 Fahrenheit. And we ran this cross-country race, and I always remember seeing Frank and Philbert just going to the front and just going at it, hammer and tongs, trying to kill each other, which they did. <laughs> <laughs> and they both dropped out. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, I didn't run very well. I probably only came about 20th or something, but uh, I beat Frank that day. But, you know, 
you know, uh, Marcus O'Sullivan, I raced him a lot. He beat me every time. So you know, I'd like to say I beat Marcus, but no, it's not true. Um, yeah, he was very good. Uh, cool, I beat Ray Flynn once at Crystal Palace. I mean, you know, but Ray's probably 10 years older than me, maybe. I don't know. Okay. He's at least okay. five years older than me. So, yeah. So, and listen, you know, unfortunately, we're not a, a track running podcast. We, we are a track running podcast. So I wish I could talk for another half an hour about those track days. But but we're moving towards the mountains and the trails, if we can, Paul. Yes, um, definitely. Just maybe get to close off that chapter. Um, after that incredible, what, 10, 15 year period racing with the best in the world, beating some of the best in the world. And um, what was it that caused um, that chapter of your running career the end Paul was it just you know age caught up on you or was there any particular injury or no, just no, just to age. yeah I did you know I don't think I didn't realize that the door had shut if you see what I mean uh, you know I, I haven't run on the track for a long time uh 20 odd years or whatever but uh yeah. you know it's just something you just get a bit slower don't you and you just kind of I, I've never stopped running partly because of my job and partly because you know mostly because I just love it so I you know you just kind of go off in a different direction than trail running, for instance, you know, has filled that void, if you like. And I love trail running. I speak to lots of people about it and they always say the same thing as me. You know, they love trail running. I spoke to a woman from the black trail running community just this week and she was saying, I asked her why she loves trail so much. And she said, oh, I used to be a road runner. She said, but you know, I hate times. And I said, yeah, you, uh, I, so I've heard that story a million times, you know, you just, trail is all about running isn't it building strength and just enjoying yourself and if you run a half marathon in whatever it doesn't matter on the trails so that's how i kind of just drifted into that i've never never gone away from track running i still love track running but i didn't realize that i'd retired <laughs> okay but apologies if i did and um, preempt your retirement from the track it's uh, it's wonderful to see that you're still getting out there and sure um um i don't know if you were in the or at the world championships in finland wasn't that only last week and um, there were some great photographs coming through from the masters track championship oh, yeah. in finland i saw that yeah i yeah i you know credit to them i've never really in, i don't know i've never I've never really got into masters running as such. Uh, they say that, you know, I quite like to see where I finished in the masters race after I've done it. But I don't know that I, I've deliberately entered a masters only event. Um, I don't know, but I suppose because you you definitely know the answer, don't you? You're definitely going to run slower than you used to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, at least you can still compete and you still have maybe a chance of getting onto the podium against people that are in the same situation as yourself, whether it's, yeah. you know, with a couple of kids hanging out here or whether it's a stressful job that you need to go back there. So there's yeah. a bit more of a level playing field, maybe. Yeah, no, I, I love it. I mean, I ran in Snowdonia the other week and uh, so I'm really proud. I ran in, uh, you know, the Golden Trail series or whatever. And I came 22nd. So oh, okay. I was really I was really chuffed with that. And then of course I made a mistake looking up where I finished in the Masters race. <laughs> I was fifth in that race. So me neck, there was four people in front of me. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. rumor has it that you might be making an appearance in Clonmel in September to be confirmed. But oh no, might... I've entered. Oh, oh you've entered. Quick. Okay, so it is confirmed. We'll definitely be seeing one English fest there anyway. Yeah, there are no mountains in Ireland, are there? Yeah, that's what I'm basing it, that uh, fact. Oh, we, we've <laughs> got a few hills anyway that you know that will throw a challenge down to you. Um, but but I'm just you know moving on. Then again, you went to Oklahoma. You, you studied journalism there, I think. 
Yes. What, was it always your intention to try and use that to work in the running world, to, to write about athletics, to write about trail running? Or yes. was it just kind of just, it, it all happened by chance and all it ended up, you know, well, yes. nicely yes, for yeah. you? It, Yes, it was by chance. And yes, that's always, I, do you know, I can, uh, it's a bit sad, isn't it? I can remember walking back from some college class in journalism, talk, dreaming about covering the Olympics. So there you go. It's always been one of my dreams. And yes, I've covered the Olympics a couple of times, three times. So, uh, so, so I've fulfilled that dream, but it's also completely by chance, isn't it? I, uh, I saw an, an, an ad for Athletics Weekly just after I graduated. And um, so, you know, wrote off and sure enough, got the job. And from there, I've mostly stayed writing about running, you know, athletics or trail running. But I have I have wandered off as well. I worked for Trinity Mirror newspapers for a couple of years on a daily newspaper. That was really exciting. And uh, mm. and I've worked um, unbelievably, <laughs> I mean, unbelievably, I've worked as the editor of a, a cooking magazine for about three years. <laughs> so, uh, because uh, um, my parents own a, a restaurant, so I'm kind of interested in that sort of. But uh, so just use those magazine skills to do that a little bit, and um, I still dibble uh, in. Uh, I also into cars a little bit, so I also work once a week at the moment for Classic yeah. Car Weekly. So uh, writing about um, old cars. <laughs> Very old. Isn't it a real joy to to get paid to? whether it's to work with or to write about, you know, what we love, what all of us would love doing, running, trail running, track running, road running. Um, I'm sure a lot of those days when you are writing and working hard, they, they don't feel like work and it's a joy to be there. Like in fairness, I'm sure in La Palma, there a couple of weeks ago covering the, the European off-road running championships. Um, sure, we were there working and we had a lot of hours to do um, and a few, you know, stressful moments when there's winners crossing the line and maybe there's a camera not working or a microphone not working but it was still yeah. a real joy as i'm sure for you it is most days too oh yeah it's, it's not work is it i and uh so yeah i don't regard it as i know i'm really lucky and i don't really regard anything uh, as work so you know i'm working working tomorrow at the national under 20 track championships for england athletics and uh but you know other people obviously will be there watching and that's all i'm doing watching and then you know i'll chat to the guys and i'll write about it afterwards but it's not really work is it it's it's having fun uh, yeah and that's you know i work i i work for bauer media mostly and that, that's exactly how the company operates it, you know we're all professional journalists but but we're all really specialists in our area you know and we've got you know fishing magazines and uh, surprise surprise the guys who will work on that are you know, fish all day and love it, you know, and they have the skill to write about it and make that entertaining for everyone else. But yeah, yeah. Well, 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 I'm going to ask the listeners to just uh, to close their eyes for a second, Paul, and pretend that they're the editor of a trail running magazine, Trail Running UK Mag. <laughs> what does that job look like for us as we <laughs> dream about having your position for the next couple of minutes? Okay, well, it's an easy job to do in a so well, it, you know. You do need to have a special. I, I got my degree in journalism, so you do need to have that specialist not un, knowledge on how to put a magazine together. So and there is a formula to that. But from there on, you know, my philosophy is that what do I know? I want to hear from readers and people out there. And if someone, you know, if someone calls me or sends me an email and says, 
oh, do you know what? I ran a fabulous race in uh, Timbuktu yesterday. Oh, it was amazing. So I want that community spirit. So I want them to tell me about it. And if we can turn that into a feature and explain why it was so great and how you two can do it, that's where we live. That's the world we live in. So, yeah, we have we have professional journalists working for us, but also I've got lots of readers that um, who are, you know, are sending me information and telling me stuff all the time, you know, and I think, wow, that's a cool idea. I'm never going to go there. So, you know, if if they've got. You know, photography is hugely important in our world. Our pictures have to look amazing. So if they have got great photography, that is handy. But if they don't, we have ways of getting around that. But, um, you know, that's, so that's kind of the, the starting point. You know, and then I've got a team of just three or four of us. So there's Laura, our designer, so she can turn stuff into that looks a bit uninteresting into amazing looking pages. We've got a, a guy called Mark who's a production editor and he'll rewrite people's gibberish into fantastic English as I would help him as well. You know, he works for the Wall Street Journal as well, very glamorously. And, um, and then I've got an online editor called Paul who's run 228 for the marathon. So already, you know, he's, he's a passionate runner that, uh, you know, just knows his stuff and he's represented Wales in trail running, in fact. So, okay. uh, you know, he's, you know, he's a top guy and uh, I'm working with him tomorrow, for instance. So, you know, he's, he's a real stat guy. He knows all the stats and all that stuff. So yeah. and that's how we work, really. So people fire loads of ideas at me and I kind of filter them down and away we go. And do you find, Paul, that there's still an audience, still a market for the actual physical magazine? When we hear about, say, the daily newspapers under threat, and everybody just clicking on their Facebook, you know, page and Instagram page and reading stuff there for about 60 seconds before they get distracted and, and move on to something else. And um, is the magazine still doing OK? Is it still being picked up off the shelves or is very much all online now? Oh, no, it is. Well, the magazine is doing, you know, the same as it's always done. I think by chance we hit a formula that kind of works in that uh, we only do six issues a year. So, okay. you know, people kind of look forward to it. Uh, I think magazines that, you know, that are monthly, a little bit more difficult, but we work in a specialist area. So, you know, so I say I work for the car, a car newspaper as well. Well, that sale has never changed. People love to, to buy, pick up, read about cars and look at cars. And people still like to, pick up magazines and read about trail running and look at pictures yeah it's it's it is more difficult because you know generally speaking people don't go out as much to buy magazines from supermarkets and things like that so we do rely a little bit more on subscription formula but um yeah so people get it through the post but apart from that sales have stayed more or less the same but behind the scenes you know, we have to change accordingly. You know, we have a massive Instagram following now, 85,000. You know, we have a massive Twitter following, the same kind of numbers. So, you know, we, we're working, you know, we understand, uh, you know, our, our editorial director, he kind of says, you know, you're trying to create a WhatsApp community, you know, and that's how we work. You know, we're trying to be friends with it, with everyone. And, uh, you know, we can upset people. That's just the way it is. But, uh, you know, and try just to, say yeah we love trail running 
Which yeah. we do. <laughs> and is there is there any race that stands out for you in the UK, Paul? And I suspect you might be a little bit compromised that you know you probably get invited <laughs> to so many races and probably have various maybe I don't know advertisement agreements yeah. with races. I don't know if you're allowed to say what race you I really enjoy. They don't actually know. advertise with us, so there you go. So I, I've run quite a few of the Lakeland Trails, right? <laughs> yeah. and they don't advertise with us, but you know the name. It, will sum it up on it they're in the lakes and they you know and the guy i've met the guy a few times and uh he he uh, he's like us i suppose he's hit on a formula that works he you know he runs three there's three or four distances a sort of beginners 5k uh you know a bit of fun a 10k and a slightly longer race you know and there's a band at the end and there's drinks and you know it's just generally a nice morning out you know so yeah. and over just to, some stunning scenery but you know you, you I was thinking about the question you think well I don't think there are you know favorites because every race is different isn't it I mean you know I've mm -hmm. run I've run abroad in uh, I was trying to think well where's the best place I've run you know Chamonix is amazing but then you think wow but I really liked running in Lapland you know I mean yeah the scenery there was stunning but for different reasons so it wasn't mountainous it was pretty flat in, in in the arctic circle but you know i think that's what's so beautiful about trail isn't it it's one trail is amazing and then another one is oh, that's just as incredible for all different reasons well we ran in you know la palma and the canary islands wow those trails there are incredible weren't they but yeah, they were you know, beautiful. so different, different with, with, a, with a extinct volcano just literally what two miles down the road <laughs> yeah. that we were able it to run around steam, was it it was steaming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. True. Only, only seven months ago, um, it stopped. Um, and how do you see the, the sport of trail running, Paul, at the moment? I mean, we saw, say, Snowdonia become part of the UTMB circuit. Yeah. There seems to be just so much options, so much competition between Golden Trail, Spartan, UTMB. And then, of course, all of our just wonderful local races that are trying to survive mm. in amongst all the big giants of the trail running world at the moment. Um, how do you view it? Do you think we're going in the right direction? We're maybe heading towards an Olympic sport one day? Well, I hope so. I mean, you know, one of the organisers, Sarah, that's her dream is that, I mean, trail running would look amazing wouldn't it if you can get the cameras to work correctly and get drones up there and a 10 million cameras filming it i suppose like a bit like the mountain biking at the olympics the, the scenery there but even that wasn't that good was it compared to what we know we run through uh, yeah. so i think at the top end maybe that's just a pipe dream uh, underneath it's a tricky one in that trail is definitely growing and uh, you know there are bigger and bigger numbers but then, you know, everyone listening to this, I'm guessing, and the same as me, is that do you run trail races because there are millions of people in it? Not really. You, you kind of like to run it because there aren't many people in it. And you want to be running through the mountains and the stunning scenery just with a couple of people, not millions of people on your shoulder. And uh, so it's a it's a difficult formula to um, to hit exactly right, isn't it? I went, my friend, uh, very glamorously, invented the Great North Run with Brendan Foster. Mm. And uh, so, you know, so he knows what he's talking about. He tried to, he invented a trail race once in um, Keswick. And so we went up with him and we ran the course. The course was amazing, really good. And, uh, and then the race itself was really good, but there were too many people in it and it didn't take off for the right, you know, because of that, there were just too many people and no one wanted to do it. There's, 
the second year, no one was interested in doing it because there was just a great North Run total thing. You know, they put the correct product, you know, they created a fantastic product, but it was too good. It's really interesting. Yeah, and I'll just share some interesting stats from the UTMB Valderan that I was at there, Paul, just last weekend. And um, their main flagship event, the 165 kilometer race, just over 100 miles, their figures were actually down, I think, roughly 40 to 45 percent on last year in their big race. Now, their smaller race, the 55K race, that was actually up by about 30, 35 percent. But what happened then was there was lots of pictures and videos coming through of just bottlenecks out on the trails because the trails couldn't handle the increase in four or five hundred runners that were there. And so I think you might see people maybe beginning to move away from the hundred milers as they realize just how hard these are. (laughs) You know, it might sound great. It might look good in an Instagram post or a Facebook post. And then when you do one once, you might realize that's all I'm going to do. So I think we might see the, the numbers in those big races come down. People might go towards the, the shorter distances, but then can the mountains and the trails, can they handle those shorter distances? Can they handle the crowds on the shorter distances? And as we said, they're, they're very different to a Great North Run or a London Marathon or a Dublin Marathon where you'll, you know, you'll easily get back 20, 25, 30,000 every year. And people are okay with those numbers. Yeah, yeah, you don't have a problem with it, the Great North Run, but you do shoving 15,000 people into Keswick, you know, the toilets aren't, you know, there's all the, all the extras you need to fit in just takes away from the event, doesn't it? It's, it's, a, yeah. it's a tricky uh, situation because people love trails. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, it's easy to grow the numbers uh, initially, but uh, although, although who wants to run a hundred miles? Not me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and especially when we have such good local races, the, the fell running scene in the UK, the Irish Mountain Running Association here in Ireland do such great work as well. Um, and I think we're, we're certainly getting there in terms of the video coverage. You know, we saw the drones in operation in El Paso. If you look at the Golden Trail series now, the package they put together is superb their little kind of 20 minute 25 video review it's something like what you see in the tour de france stages they're really on point utmb are upping their game of course as well their, their live streaming is superb over the course of their week in chamonix and um, we're maybe not quite there in having that perfect package i think for an olympic audience to get yeah. up to maybe bbc nbc level but we're yeah, on the way yes yeah i mean yeah i, I guess because it's yeah, it's such a specialist sport, isn't it? But uh, And we love it so much that we would say, yes, it's ready for the Olympics, but you're right, does the average person want to watch it? I don't know. Uh, but, uh, and also, you know, as trail running is about participation, isn't it? I mean, that's that's the thing. You watch the Golden Trail or whatever, and then you want to go and do the event straight away. I mean, that's kind of... Whereas the Olympics is a bit different. So, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. Um, to, to finish off, Paul, um, you, you've, you've coached, you, you manage teams at, at a very high level, and I've seen that you've written lots and lots of coaching and advice articles over the years. Um, do you mind sharing maybe one or two of the top tips that you think you, 
do this guys this works <laughs> i've seen people who don't do it and they end up injured or not yeah well, what, what are kind of your top one or two tips that... i know you sent me that a question to it and i see oh my god well you know people talk about you know actually i've heard about that in in finland someone said they were so great because of their diet and all that stuff well, that is all important but you know i was trying to think what's the best answer so and there was a so i'm going to tell you so uh, a guy i co- i coached sadly doesn't run anymore so he had autism so he wasn't a great runner you know and he used to turn up and he would get he's about 16 i think and he would get killed you know they would everyone in the group would hammer him and he would come last in every workout and uh, but because of his autism he had one one useful asset in that he never ever 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 underline ever missed a workout never and then you know the other kids would come in and out and they would and then suddenly after two years he's the best kid in the group he's at the front of the pack cruising along way you know just loving it just killing all these kids that come in and out and you think wow it's consistency isn't it it's don't do anything he never did anything particularly amazing in training you know no he didn't run 100 miles a week or anything like that he just you know did some training but for years and years and years, and then suddenly, in quotation marks, he's he's one of the best runners, and you think, whoa, that's uh... so that's an important thing. Consistency, don't go mad. Don't think I need all oh, training for the you know the Dublin whatever or uh, you know or this giant mountain race. You know, just take it easy. Give yourself plenty of time. Don't go mad. Just run consistently, and you will get better. And actually, train and that last point as well, training for something, you need a goal. If you're just going to, as you may be finding, Owen, if you don't have a goal, you kind of just float about and don't really do much. So it doesn't have to be a big goal, but you, know, you need to have, oh, I'm going to do a race in October or whatever, or I'm going to run to the top of this hill in November. You need to have something just to aim for, to keep yeah. you keep you focused really otherwise your yeah. consistency goes out the window and there you go and, and it doesn't need to be a big massive utmb race or no. a golden trail series race oh. and even like i'll give you my own example paul for this year um first of all you know i would have loved to have tried to make the team for the for the european championships in la palma but duty called and we had to go and work on it so that was fine um, and then i would love to have done the dublin marathon in october hmm. but my wife is actually pregnant number four on the way so I can't be running 26 miles around Dublin and potentially new little baby girl coming. <laughs> so for, for the first time in about, I'd say, since I started running 16 or 17 years, I had no goal for the summertime to be running for. So the, the best I could find was two local 5K races in Ireland when I'm on home and holidays now in two or two weeks time. But it was amazing even just to have a 5K road race to do. Yeah. Enough to keep me going over the summertime. Yeah, that's that's you know I use that formula myself. So you know, I, you know, I, I can only run slower now, but I set myself little goals. So you know, we went. Um, so the first one in this this summer was there was a vertical kilometer in the lakes you know, up Skiddaw. Well, I've never done that, so I thought, well, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that, and that really focused me. It was great for six weeks. I mean, I didn't go, I didn't train to win it or or do anything amazing. Just wanted to get up it, you know, without killing myself. So. You know, and it helped brilliantly. And I, I had a fan, fantastic time. So you just, that's all you need. So then you think, oh, I've done that. I'm yeah. going to set myself Snowdonia next, you know, so I've done that. And now I'm just thinking, oh, 
now I'm going to Clonmel in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a, I suspect you'll be, I suspect you'll be deep down as competitive as you were back in those glory days of the. Well, ABC. yeah, I'm already dreaming. I wouldn't be surprised to see you charging around that final bend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well you know it, well, it works doesn't it because that's how goal setting works so you know i'm training for it and obviously i you know i'm based i live in the fens where there are no hills at all so uh I, i'm dreaming of running up mountains and you know i've already visualized several times i'll be crossing the line glorious world champion etc <laughs> but you know not easy to do when you have no i ran 15 miles last week and there's 60 feet of climbing <laughs> Well, well listen, bring your pen with you to Clonmel because I'm sure there'll be a, a few fans um, looking for an autograph, Paul, and you'll probably be our, our most famous and most accomplished master on the day. And listen, Paul, it was a real, a real pleasure to talk to you today. Good luck with your training for the Masters and good luck with everything um, for the magazine as well. Keep up the great work and, and a real pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. Cheers. there we have it for this week guys a big thank you as always to Remy for joining us on the show and what a real treat it was to talk with Paul there and um, thanks a million Paul and good luck with everything over the next couple of months with the magazine and indeed your own prep for Clonmel and the World Championships do take care everybody in the heat and thanks again to Eco Trail Wicklow on September 24th for supporting the show this month do make sure to sign up before bid numbers sell out over the next couple of weeks and thank you again guys to you guys the listeners who have helped us rank 5th globally in trail running podcasts so do pop over to patreon to support the show if you get a chance guys to help keep the lights on at the trail running ireland podcast and only one thing left to say guys as always everyone get your running gear on let's go